If you're not already there, Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 13. Last week, interesting message. The, we were trying to get some things right as Christians. Uh, we needed to have the correct commission and the correct commitment. We needed to understand the correct commission. What was Jesus commissioned to do? And you remember he told us, he, I came, he revealed to his disciples, he said, I came and I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to suffer and I'm going to be killed and I'm going to be raised the third day. And that was the correct commission. If they had any other ideas about the Messiah, thinking that he was going to be this powerful military sort of ruler and reigner, you know, reigner, uh, political sort of reigning ruler, if he was going to do that, uh, that was coming in the future. But now is the time for the Messiah to suffer. They didn't understand that the first time he comes, he comes and suffers and dies and he's crucified, and he's resurrected, and he comes back again in glory. They didn't get that, but now they understand. And the correct commitment, they, Jesus told them plain out. He says, you need to deny yourself. If anybody wants to follow after me, he said it plain as day. You need to deny yourself. You need to pick up your cross, and you need to follow me. And his disciples would have just like, wow. You know, we've been following this guy around. We've been watching him heal people, do miracles. And now he tells us he's going to die. He says that this is his destiny, his a brutal death, and he tells us that we need to follow right along with him. That's heavy, you know. That's a heavy thing. So the correct commission Jesus sent to the cross and the correct commitment, we need to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, follow Jesus, even if it means to the death. And that's such a heavy thing for me to say uh, to us. That's such a heavy thing for us to read in the scriptures, you know, that Jesus, that's what he demands of people. He says, if anybody would follow after me, this is, this is the sort of commitment he's looking for. Can you put yourself there in these disciples' minds after they'd heard such a thing? Just told their leader was going to suffer and die. Need to be willing to do the same thing. Then he tells them in verse 27 of chapter 16, if you'd look at it, points their minds in the right direction. He says, for the son of man, it's a term for Jesus, um, first kind of revealed in the book of Daniel. The Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Okay, so that's pretty heavy, Jesus. You tell us this is a huge commitment involved. Uh, it could go all the way to death, but you're coming. You're coming in glory, and you're going to reward those that have given their lives to serve you. And that's, a, that's a really cool thing. He puts their minds in the right direction with the right motive, right? Then he says something in verse 28 that's interesting. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, these guys would have needed some encouragement probably at this point, some renewal. They've been following Jesus for two years. This has been, you know, they've been kind of turned upside down by all of this. Jesus going to give a few of them experience that's going to do just that, that's going to renew their sense of awe and wonder of who he is. Now, we too need this at times. We need a renewed sense of awe and wonder. Have you ever been there in your walk with the Lord where just like theology doesn't really excite you too much? You know, you can kind of hear the gospel preached and you're like, you know, doesn't really do much for me. Have you ever been there? Kind of stale. Maybe, maybe you've been through an emotional thing. Maybe you've been like these disciples and it's just been like a roller coaster of two years. And maybe these disciples have been a little too familiar. They've been following him two years watching this stuff. They're kind of familiar with him. You know, the Bible says that Jesus is like a friend to us and we can get real casual with him because he, he's our friend, you know, and he, he loves us. And for whatever reason, 
all of us really come to a place where we need renewal, where we need God to break through and to remind us of who he is, of his holiness, of his grace, of his power, of just his altogether otherness, that he is God, that he's so far above, he's exalted, he's on high, and only he can do that. You know, a preacher could stand up here and get people worked up and all that stuff, and, and, but really what we need is God to do that. And so I think that's what the Lord's going to do, at least he's done that for me. He's done that for me in the last couple of days, and as I've been studying this passage this week, he's, he's really done that for me. By observation today, we're going to see, we're going to learn, we're going to watch this experience that Jesus gives his disciples. And then by observation, we're going to learn a few things that can help us uh, sort of to be in that position of renewal, right? Like I said, God alone renews, right? You can't be like, let's have a revival. Okay, what day are we going to have the revival? Oh, it looks like the 15th is a good day for revival. Okay, revival, come on down. You ever seen a flyer like that? We're having a revival. Well, you can whoop people up in the flesh. That's great, you know, and maybe God will get involved with that too. Maybe God will be like, oh, they scheduled it on the 15th. Sure, I'll show up. I'll, I'll revive them, you know, but real revival, it comes from the Lord, right? And so as his followers, as his people, I think the best thing we could do is just to be in the position to receive revival, to long for it, to call out for it, to desire it, Right? Some of us don't want revival. You're perfectly happy in, you know, in the rut that you're in. It serves a purpose. But the best we can do as his disciples, I think, is to be calling out for him to revive and renew us. And we're just going to see that in this passage. We're going to learn a few principles about what it means to uh, you know, be in that position, to be revived. Number, verse number one says, Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and, Jesus, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. After six days. Now, Matthew is likely putting this here to tie it to the very scene that happened before. It's like he's saying in Matthew 6, 28, where Jesus said, 16, 28, Jesus said, there's some of you standing here that won't taste death until you see the king coming in his glory or, or the son of man coming in his kingdom, right? And then he says, now after six days, it's, it's likely the reason Matthew does this is he's tying the things together because you look at the whole gospel of Matthew and he doesn't really make any other specific time statements like this. So after six days, the fulfillment, really, of Matthew 16, 28. Now, Matthew 16, 28 has been the subject of a lot of debate throughout church history. What exactly did Jesus mean when he said that some of them standing there wouldn't taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom? What did he mean? Well, let's keep going on. I think we'll find the answer. It says he took Peter, James, and John, his brother. These three are frequently found with Jesus. They're kind of like the inner circle. Um, you, you read how many times it says Peter, James, and John were with Jesus in like a private setting. That jumped out to me this week because I've seen by reading that Peter, James, and John make a ton of mistakes in their lives. That's really cool that Peter, James, and John are the inner circle of Jesus Christ, like with them privately all this time. And, and these are guys that made some serious blunders in their ministries. I don't think there's anything hardly more serious than thinking that you should pray fire down on people and destroy them. You remember when they did that and Jesus was like, you don't know what spirit you're of. You don't even know, what are you doing? You know? Uh, how about Peter? Peter denied Jesus three 
three times. Peter gets done saying, uh, you know, I would never deny you, Lord, no matter what happened. And by the way, all the disciples said that, right? If you read that carefully, it wasn't just Peter. And they all, all of them deserted him on the night of his crucifixion. These are Jesus' inner circle, people that have denied Jesus at times, people that have made tremendous mistakes, people that are encouraging to me because I make mistakes, you know. And uh, this tells me that I can be close to Jesus, you know. Making mistakes doesn't qualify you from being close to Jesus. What a relief when he says, I know the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he leads them up onto a high mountain by themselves. Now, after six days, after this week of rest and pondering about Jesus' death, resurrection, what it means to take up the cross, deny self, he takes them up on a high mountain. Now, there's a debate over which mountain this is, of course, right? Is it uh, Mount Tabor or is it Mount Hermon? Um, I'll tell you my opinion if you're, you know, it doesn't, it says that they take him up on a high mountain. Mount Tabor is not a high mountain, right? Um, so most of the scholars that I've read, the archaeologists, they say that this is probably Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is just northeast of Caesarea, northwest, excuse me, of Caesarea Philippi. That's where they were at already. But the scholars will come back and say, well, no, Caesarea Philippi is, or uh, Mount Hermon is such a high mountain that they couldn't be up there without snow gear. It's snow capped. And then the scholars come back and say, well, but they didn't, doesn't say they went to the top of the mountain. It says they went to a high mountain. And so if you're ever interested in reading scholarly debates about which mountain this was, uh, you know, pick up some books. It's great reading. Get a, get a coffee, get a tea, go to a rainy day, you know, sit by your fireplace, pipe. Mm-hmm. says that he was transfigured before them. Do you see that there? What a weird word that is. Transfigured. That might get hijacked in 2022, right? The Greek word metamorpho. What does that word sound like to you? Metamorphosis. Yeah. Have you ever seen a caterpillar? And then they go through a metamorphosis and then become a butterfly. It's, it's very simple what the word means. Um, it means the simplest definition for metamorpho is a change of form or to change form. So Jesus, he takes them up on this mountain and he undergoes this huge change, this metamorphosis. He physically changes. He allows his appearance to be changed or he changes it himself. I don't understand exactly how it works. There's a lot of mystery in this passage. But he takes them up on this mountain and he was transfigured before them. His form was changed before them. Transformation from an earthly form into this supernatural form. It's displayed by what it says next. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Now, you can look at the moon. You can look at Saturn. Through a tele, you, know, you can look at the stars, some of them, but you can't look at the sun. It's interesting, this description of him, right? That his face shone like the sun, right? You learn right away when you're young not to look at the sun, right? This is something else. This is a description of, of a literal thing that happened to these guys. They saw Jesus in the state. His face shone like the sun. Mark's gospel, his account says, His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Luke in his gospel says, as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. Now, 
when you put this in context with Matthew 16, 28, where it says, there's some of you standing here that won't taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, this is likely what he's referring to. These three guys, they're getting this touch of heaven. They're getting this touch of seeing Jesus um, almost as he is, truly. Because nobody can behold God and, and look upon him in this earth, right? Because he's just, he's too much to behold. Remember Moses said, show me your glory. He says, I'm not going to show you my glory, but I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. I'll go by. You'll see the afterglow, right? Remember Moses come down the Mount of Sinai and he says, I got to cover my face because they can't even behold the glory even of that. And they were talking uh, Moses. Now, now, this is Jesus allowing them to see that he's fully God, he's fully man. He's fully God, he's fully man. It's a, it, we can't really wrap our minds around this. He's the, he's the God man. I don't understand. Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, it says that he came to earth. When he came to earth, he took the form of a bond servant, right? Jesus came and he took the form of a servant coming in the likeness of men. So God put on humanity when he came here. But he never got rid of any of his divinity. But he put on humanity. He took the form of a servant. And now what he's doing with his disciples, after they've heard stuff like he needs to die, he has to go to the cross. We need to be willing to go to death with him. Oh, jeez, I don't know about this stuff anymore. And then they see him in this state. He's been transfigured. And they're, they're going to be renewed, trust me. When you see Jesus, when you get this sense of Jesus, of who he really is, I mean, it just renews you, Right? And they're seeing something that's never been seen before. Day in and day out, Jesus was visible to them in his humanity. Here, his divinity is also on display. He's fully God. He's fully man. John reflects on this many years later, doesn't he? John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You're going to have to pray for me that I don't start going, glory! <laughs> I mean, you want to when you hear that word. Like... John 1.14, we beheld his glory. John reflecting on this years later. You know, we followed Jesus because we saw these things. We, we just, we gave our, they, they all went to the death, you know, for their faith in Jesus Christ. All they would have had to do is just say, Caesar's Lord. They just said, Jesus is Lord, you know, and all these guys, you know, because they'd seen these things. They've witnessed him in his glory. It reminds you of the Apostle Paul when he was taken to the ground, right? He was on his way. He had essentially the equivalent of like warrants from the, you know, religious officials. And he was going to go get the Christians and drag them out of their house. And he was going to beat them and he was going to have them put to death. And as he's on the way to uh, the city of Damascus, um, a great white light shines around Paul and he's taken down to the ground and he's, he knows it's the Lord. He says, Lord, what do you want me to do? And he's transformed. And he just sees this light, Right. This glory, there's a connection between the Shekinah glory of the Old Testament. You remember the Shekinah glory that when the temple and everything was, or the tabernacle was all set up for worship, it was all ready to go. The priests, the Levites, everybody had been set up. And then the Shekinah glory filled the tabernacle. You remember that? You remember also the dedication of the temple. Solomon dedicates his temple. He gives this amazing prayer. And what happens is the Shekinah glory, the cloud, the glory of the Lord fills the temple. They can't even do ministry in it. They're just like, oh, jeez, we've got to go out here. So much glory in this place, right? 
2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Paul is saying there's something about the Holy Spirit at work in people that believe the gospel. You're seeing Jesus, his glory, and you're being transformed from glory to glory more into this image, being transformed by the glory of the Lord, shining through, breaking through humanity and through this reality to transform and to, and, to, uh, and to shine. It's just amazing. Revelation chapter 22, verse 13. It's pretty interesting. There won't be any sun, moon. There's no, there's no need for the light, right? Because Jesus is the light. It says in Revelation 22, 13, this is after all of the end times events have unfolded. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it for the glory of God illuminated. it. The lamb is its light. That's amazing. And Jesus is letting some of this come out. Until this day, he only revealed himself through his teaching, through his miracles. But now he's letting them see that he's fully God and he's fully man. Can you imagine? One day we'll see the Lord face to face and says, we'll see him face to face and we'll be like him. We'll be like he is. We'll see that glory face to face. Uncomprehensible. We can't even, can't think about it even now. Don't leave here and go stare at the sun and say, I want to try to get a glimpse of the glory. You'll come back like, I just, I shouldn't have done it. <laughs> Behold, um, Moses and Elijah appeared to them. These are two important figures from the Old Testament. Moses representing the law and the prophets, the, or the law, excuse me, the Old Testament, the, the Ten Commandments being part of that, the 613 commandments, the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy is the retelling of the law. And Moses is here talking with Jesus. Elijah representing the prophets. The prophets were messengers of God that were sent to God's people to warn them of their backsliding. Come back to Jehovah, you're worshiping false gods. And Elijah represents the prophets. He had an amazing ministry. Moses and Elijah are there talking with Jesus. Moses representing saints that had died in the Lord before this, before time. And then Elijah representing saints that had been taken. Do you remember, did Elijah experience physical death? Well, he was taken, he was raptured, right? And so it's kind of significant that you've got Moses representing those that have died in the Lord, the saints that have died before. He's representing the law. And then Elijah is representing the prophets, those that have been taken. Here we have a picture of what's the coming in the kingdom, right? <coughs> And they were talking with him, and you wonder what they were talking about, but you don't have to wonder that long because Luke tells us, Luke 9.31, it says that he appeared in glory and, and they, I'm sorry, who appeared in glory, talking about Moses and Elijah, and said that they spoke of his decease, which was about to be accomplished at Jerusalem. So Moses and Elijah are standing there talking with Jesus about the crucifixion. That must have been interesting. You think about all the things that Moses wrote, you know, that there's a prophet coming after me, you know, that's not me, he's greater than I am. All of these ministries of Moses and Elijah pointed towards the Messiah, and here they are standing with him, talking with him about the crucifixion, about the resurrection that's coming. This is fascinating. You wish you could just overhear. It's pretty interesting that Moses, you know, 1,400... How many years old? Still alive. He's okay. This is a picture of uh, 
you, you realizing that those that have died before in Christ, they live, right? And here they are. Now, this is what I believe Jesus is referring to when he says that there were some standing there that wouldn't you know, die until they saw the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Here's what they're seeing. Now, these three are catching a glimpse of the eternal kingdom, not the complete fulfillment of it. Okay, there's been a little bit of debate about what the kingdom means in verse 28. You know, there's different elements to the kingdom of God. That statement needs to be qualified. It's a complex term. Um, there's the element of kingdom of God, like everything in the universe is his kingdom. In that sense, he's sovereign over everything in the universe, sinners, saints, and everything. That, in a sense, is the kingdom of God. Uh, there's the kingdom of God that, remember when Jesus came and he said, the kingdom of God is within you. He said, it's within your midst. There's the kingdom of God is wherever the king is and wherever he's ruling, right? There's the sense of the kingdom of God when Jesus when sent the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and came in and dwelled believers. And now the kingdom of God is within you. In that sense, the king is ruling and reigning inside of you, right? What this... Um, is referring to in 1628 is Jesus saying some of these disciples, what they're going to do is they're going to see a glimpse of the kingdom. And that's what we have here. Now, number two. So Jesus was transfigured. He took them away. They needed some renewal. They go onto this mountain and he is transfigured before them. And they see this, have, they have this experience that is just mind blowing. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, arise, do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now, you got to get a kick out of Peter, right? Here he is up on this spiritual, literal, spiritual mountaintop experience. He's having this good time. By the way, Luke says that they were sleeping until like, they noticed Moses and Elijah talking. And, all this. and Peter wakes up. Um, the other gospels tell us that Peter didn't know what he was saying, isn't that a good combination for life? You're speaking, saying things while you don't know what you're saying. Did anybody ever do that? <laughs> Some people do that. You think about it like as it's coming out, and you're like, no, 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 and then say something different. People are like, I can't be around you. <laughs> it's so weird. Peter doesn't know what he's saying, and he says, oh, Lord, it's good for us to be here. <laughs> interesting. It's good for us. What about the other guys that are down on the bottom of the mountain? Like, well, it's good for us. You know, we're, we're here. No concern for the rest of the 12 at this moment. Just telling Jesus how it is. Jesus, you, you picked a group of winners right here. You know, I don't know how you pick them, Jesus, but these guys, myself, it's good that we're here. 
if you wish, Jesus, uh, why don't we make three tabernacles? Now, he's probably referring to the booths that are used to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. You've read about it in the book of Leviticus. There were feasts that God uh, commanded Israel to observe every year, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles being one of them. What they would do during this time is they would build little booths, little huts, little garden sheds, uh, little man caves, she sheds. No, they're not. <laughs> That's just weird. Um, and they would live in them for, you know, a period of time and what they would do for a week. And what they would do is they would remember the time where they wandered in the wilderness. That's the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a, you know, commemoration of God's faithful provision and leading. And so Peter says, let us make these tabernacles. Now, the reason that Peter says this, not so easily discerned, I'll give you some different things and, and then I'll tell you my opinion as usual and, and you can do what you want with it, but he says it nonetheless and we can tell something by how he gets corrected here. Uh, it kind of gives us a clue of what he meant. Um, some believe, you know, the, the Feast of Tabernacles was near and so Peter's saying, I want to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles here, but I want to do this with Moses and Elijah and Jesus and let's just all stay up here on this mountaintop and we can just all be here forever. This is great. Um, you know, that's probably, that's most likely, I think, what's going on. Um, other people, what they see is, you know, other scholars, they say, well, what Jesus is, or what Peter's doing is he's putting Jesus, Elijah, Elijah and Moses on the same level. He's just saying, oh, it's time for the kingdom. Okay, so looks like it's kingdom time. Uh, that whole thing he said about the cross, yeah, whatever, all that stuff. Let's just set up shop right now. Let's just build three shrines for all of you great spiritual prophets. And that kind of becomes an issue, right? Because when we think, you know, he's kind of putting them all on the same level. And that's why God has to say, this is my beloved son, hear him. You know, like, don't put Jesus, Moses, and Elijah on the same level, they're not on the same level. Jesus is completely unique. Um, it'd be a compliment if somebody said, you were like Moses, but it's an insult to say that Jesus is like Moses. It's an insult to say Jesus is like anybody. He's high and exalted above all, above anybody. And so those things, that's probably what Peter's getting at. You know, he's and also, it's just a spiritual high time. Anyone, and I can relate with this. When you have a spiritual high time, like you don't want to leave, you know? Sometimes we have these worship nights here on a Friday night, and it's like 11 o'clock, and it started at 6, and you're just like, I don't want to go home. I just want to keep worshiping the Lord. Spiritual high times, you want to stay there. Sometimes you want to make a tent, you know, and uh, you don't want to go home. You know, it's so good. But nonetheless, he's kind of being selfish. He's forgot about the other 12 at this point. Another thing that he's doing is he's just like scheming. Well, let's, let's make some tents, you know, let me get out my hard hat and my, uh, you know, my compass and my, pro he's drawing plans. He's got, you know, he's got people on the phone. He's getting building permits and he's just making stuff happen. He's going to build his kingdom, right? He's going to build their kingdom, the kingdom himself. No, he gets interrupted by the grace of the Lord, I guess, and God interrupts him while he was still speaking. Notice that? I get a kick out of that. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and he's interrupted, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Same words from Jesus' baptism with the addition of hear him. Now, I like that. It's like, rather than hear Peter, hear him, you know? Peter, be quiet and put your eyes upon Jesus. Now, I think there's some application. I said we were going to learn something from some observation here. 
in this moment, this moment that people are having with God, this experience with God, there's a certain sort of thing that happens. We get uncomfortable. And some of us start to talk out of insecurity. You ever been around somebody like that? It's like, maybe you're that. You're having a moment in the Lord, you're worshiping and God's moving and somebody else is wanting to whisper rather than worship. Somebody's wanting to speak when it's time to be speechless. Somebody's trying to build when it's time to behold, right? Somebody's trying to make it happen when they ought to be taken by what is happening. And they refuse to let themselves get renewed because they're so busy and insecure in their mind. God starts to move in their heart and they start to blurt things out. They don't know what they're saying. And they start to make it happen when they ought to be worshiping, right? They finally get it right. Verse 6, the disciples heard it. They fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. Now, I find it interesting that seeing Jesus in his glory, it wasn't enough to get Peter to stop being busy, right? Maybe he was too familiar with Jesus, right? But then God the Father, this voice comes and says, this is my beloved son. You need to hear him, right? And that's enough to drop them. Common experience when you have an experience with the Lord. That's a common reaction when you have a true experience with the Lord. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, he has one. Uh, he says, So I said, Woe is me, I am undone because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So Isaiah's like, he had this encounter with God, and he goes, Wow, I'm undone, man. I am I, I don't even know what to say. I am a man of unclean lips. In other words, I need to shut my mouth. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 28, like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the Lord speaking and he goes on. He fell on his face when he had an encounter with the Lord. Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying to me, don't be afraid, I'm the first and the last. And that's kind of like what happens here. They're on their face. They're trembling in fear. This went from, wow, look at Jesus in his glory. Oh, that's cool. Hey, Jesus, it's good that I'm here. Why don't I just build a couple of tents? We'll stay here forever. It's all good. You know what? Boom. <laughs> you know, be quiet, Peter. You ought to be worshiping instead you're whispering. You ought to be speechless instead you're speaking. You ought to be taken by what's going on rather than trying to build. Uh, you know what I mean? You, you should be worshiping the Lord. You know, he's, his presence, you need a renewed sense of the awe and wonder and the holiness and the power and the goodness of God. I can remember the first time I had one of these encounters. Can you remember yours? First time I had one of these encounters, I was sitting with a friend of mine, California, Huntington Beach, Beach and Adams, um, in, our, in our four bedroom, five bedroom, wonderful beach house, a whole bunch of guys living in the house, a bunch of... Ungodly stuff happening, sitting on a couch, sun's coming up, been doing things all night that uh, you wish you could not do and have undone, and talking. And just this wave of conviction came over me. Adam, what have you done 
to people? What have you done? What are these things that have come out of your mouth? And all this guilt and all this conviction of the holiness of God. My friend next to me, I don't know what was going on with him. He peed his pants. No joke, all over the couch. And it was disgusting. We threw the couch out after that. You'll be glad to know. And I sat there and I could, my mouth was shut. My mouth had been stopped by the Lord. And I just had all this vision of like, you know, here's what holiness is. God gave me this vision in this moment. And he, he tied it to music, right? It's interesting how God will speak to you in a way you understand, right? He, he'll do that. I'm not saying, you know, anything weird by that. But, um, and he shows me with music. He says, you know, Adam, if notes are in tune, they're in tune. But if notes are not in tune, they're not in tune. And then he says, just like music is either in tune or out of tune, so is morality, Adam. And I was like, huh, never thought about that. There's like such thing as objective truth, right and wrong is right and wrong, whether it's here or Kenya or South America or Alaska, right and wrong is right and wrong, whether it's in Hollywood or Huntington Beach or Mason City. And God convicted my heart of that. And I said, you know what? I am wrong. (laughs) I am so far off from what I should be doing, you know? And God got a hold of my heart, and I was never the same after that. I remembered. I went from being uh, not sober to dead sober. Dead. Wow. This is the power of Christ. This is the power of, this is mercy. This is God saying, you are walking off a cliff, buddy. Let me show you, let me give you a taste of what holiness is. And it shook me to my, just I'll never be the same after that. That was the first time. I remember the most recent time. Most recent time, Saturday morning, having a prayer meeting. We go down our prayer list. We get to this request that says, Lord, pour out the power of your Holy Spirit upon every gathering. We pray that every Saturday. Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit upon this gathering. And as I'm praying that prayer, the Lord put this, this, and I'd say I heard an audible voice or whatever, nothing like that. Just this occurred to me. God said, what you ought to pray for is that everything that's hindering my spirit from wanting to work in your life, you should repent of. And I said, whoa. And that same thing happened to everybody in that prayer meeting. And we were all on our knees for the next half hour or hour or whatever it was, praying to the Lord for forgiveness and repentance because he broke through. He said, you're, you're too familiar. You're too comfortable. You're being selfish. You're trying to build when you ought to be hold. You're speaking when you ought to be speechless. Right? Whew. They got to the right response. No more awkward words when the power of the Lord is at work. No leaping up to build booths. No thoughts about how great it was to be there and see those things, but total silence and absolute awe. In the midst of the terror of a genuine encounter with the Lord, and then verse 7, but Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not fear. You know, there's a picture of, that's, that's kind of how Christianity works, isn't it? You're doing your life, you're doing things. God brings you to your knees. You say, have mercy on me, God. And then right then you experience this voice arise. 
now that you've been taken down, now you can get up. Don't be afraid. Once you fear the Lord, there's nothing else to fear. Until you fear the Lord, you ought to be terrified of the Lord. Once you fear the Lord, there's nothing left to fear. Because the Lord himself, God incarnate, God, fully God, fully man, God in the flesh, he looks to those that have been humbled and he says, arise, don't be fearful. Those are some sweet words. I bet those words were so sweet to those disciples as they're just shaking on the side of this mountain. How comforting. Even if he is to be crucified, even if he is to go to the cross, even if they are to experience death themselves, it's not over. They've seen his glory, and Jesus says, arise, don't be afraid. Verse 8, when they lifted up their eyes, they saw nobody but Jesus only. Jesus, it's all about you. It's all about you. All this other stuff, you know, and sometimes we need that reminder as Christians. Sometimes we get the law is too out of proportion in our life. The prophets, all this other stuff, Moses, Elijah, Good. They all pointed towards Jesus, right? It's all about Jesus, you know? It's not saying the other things aren't important. They're very important. It's all about Jesus. Humble, taken in the holy moment, not scheming or speaking, but silent in worship. Now, as they came down uh, the mountain, verse 9, our last point, Jesus commanded them, saying, tell this vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Oh, are you kidding? I can't tell anybody about this. Oh, my gosh. Didn't want to add to the whole, like, messianic fervor. You know, there were people already trying to kind of force Jesus to be this leader that he, you know, he will be in the second coming. But um, so he just, not to stir any more of that up. Don't tell anybody until the Son of Man's resurrected. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has, all, has come already. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. This is kind of confusing, but not really if you just take it slow, okay? The disciples are aware of the prophecy in Malachi, right? Are you familiar with it? Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Here's what it says. Behold, this is written way before, hundreds of years before. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike them with a curse. So Malachi was prophesying that before the day of the Lord, he's going to send Elijah. And so the disciples are like, well, wait a minute. We just saw Elijah, but it looks like the Messiah came first. We've been hanging out with Jesus for two years. So it, was Malachi wrong that, Mal that John, you know, or... Uh, Elijah was supposed to come first. Is Malachi wrong? And so they wonder about that. So they're good students of the Bible. They understand that that's what the scriptures say. They heard the scribes tell them. So Jesus affirms Malachi. And he says, um, uh, you know, indeed, Elijah is coming first before that day. Okay, that day isn't here right now. And Elijah is coming first before that day. 
Um, I believe you can read about him and another witness in the book of Revelation, that these two witnesses come before the day of the Lord. We can't be dogmatic about who they are exactly. It points towards Moses and Elijah. Some people think there's maybe Enoch. Or, you know, there's other people with different views of it, most likely Moses and Elijah, um, by the nature of their ministry, plus what's being said here about Elijah. So Jesus is saying, yeah, Malachi's right. Elijah is coming again. But then he just says something interesting. But I say to you, Elijah has come already. Well, he's coming, but he's come already? Now, in this sense, what Jesus meant was John the Baptist, his ministry was in the power and the spirit of Elijah. That's what he means. And Jesus says, essentially, a, a guy that had a ministry just like Elijah with the same thing. He came to restore Israel before the Messiah came the first time. I, Elijah will come before the Messiah comes the second time. Uh, and it's same, same purpose, to wake people up. He says, John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. And, you know, they did whatever they want. They didn't recognize him. See, the prophecy in Malachi says that the, the, the prophet will restore all things. Now, did John restore all things? No, they wouldn't respond. In fact, in Matthew chapter 11, verses 14 and 15, it talks about that. It says, if you are willing to receive it, John the Baptist is Elijah to come. They didn't receive it. So the prophecy of Malachi saying, Elijah will come and restore all things. He didn't restore all things in the first coming because they didn't receive what John the Baptist was saying, right? So here's how you want to understand that. It's confusing. I get it. John the Baptist ministered in, like Elijah, they killed him. Elijah literally is coming again before the second coming, and he will have a ministry of restoration, turning people's hearts back to the Lord. And so they wanted to know that question after this thing. That's a good thing. Have a spiritual experience, start coming down the mountain, ask spiritual questions about scriptures. Sounds like a nice day. Now, verse 13, it says, oh yeah, we get it. And he's talking about John the Baptist. Got it. And then Jesus says in there too, that likewise he'll suffer in that same sort of way. So, the transfiguration, right? This experience, it was a humbling experience that brought the disciples to their knees in worship, encouraging them that whatever may happen, that the best is you know, yet to come. Um, Jesus gave them this hard news, and then he shows them who he is. They have this experience. They're too familiar, too comfortable with Jesus. God brings them to their knees. They worship. Jesus lifts them up. I think a good application for this is just today. You know, do you, do you relate with Peter? Every time that the Lord's trying to do something, you get nervous. You're trying to plan and scheme and build, and, and you, you don't like it. You don't like it when God's trying to, you know, it makes you uncomfortable. So you take matters into your own hands in some way or another. There's a good application right there. You know, just, just to allow. This is a good one for me. Sometimes it's really good to allow your mouth to just be shut. You know, and I'm not trying to be hard on anybody else here. I'm saying that's good for me. That's really good for me. Sometimes I need to stop trying to build my own kingdom and just be taken with the fact of what God is doing. You know, I need that restored. God, give us a glimpse of who you are when we're being selfish like Peter saying it's good for us to be here. God, give us a glimpse of who you are when we're confused about who Jesus is. Is he like Moses and Elijah? God, give us a glimpse of who you are 
when I'm speaking when I ought to be speechless. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would just have a, a good time being with you uh, during this time of communion and as we partake in these elements here today that are just such a powerful picture of what you did for us. Lord, bless this time by your spirit, I pray. Have your will and have your way. In Jesus' name, amen.